Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we cover everything to do with motoring and transport, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we look at new stories, including Queensland's new supersized $15 million bus fleet won't fit in bus stops. We hear from a young lady who is a transport planner who travelled to Canada to research some aspects of her profession, including how traffic engineering can move into the modern world of technology and more professional women. Alan Zervis road tests the Nissan 300Z with the Nissan Motorsport Nismo makeover. Is it worth the effort? And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith and Brian Smith, we take a happy-go-lucky look at some quirky news stories, including David Brown Automotive bringing a high-performance GT to Geneva. There is no link to David Brown Automotive and myself, sadly. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. Almost $15 million will be spent on new high-capacity buses for Brisbane, but they will not fit in all of the city's bus stops, will be mainly standing room only, and won't allow rear door boarding. There will be 20 of Brisbane City Council's new super buses on Brisbane's roads by September. Each bus costs over $730,000. It was revealed the buses at 18 metres long would not be able to pull into every bus stop in the city. The standard bus is currently 12.5 metres. David Brown from Overdrive has said that that doesn't mean that Brisbane Council is wrong, but rather the system needs to be adapted. David has recently had a paper accepted to present to the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management on the need for more consideration of traffic engineering to help embrace new technologies such as bigger buses as well as autonomous buses and cars. With its famous autobahns and some of the most iconic motor vehicle brands in the world, the German government recently surprised many by announcing that they were considering making all public transport free of charge. The proposal will be tested this year in five cities across Western Germany, including the former capital Bonn. On top of ticketless travel, other new initiatives include further restrictions on emissions from vehicle fleets, like buses and taxis, lower emission zones and support for car sharing schemes. One of the reasons for these bold ideas is that Germany and eight fellow EU members including Spain, France and Italy have all missed a January deadline to meet EU air pollution targets. Life-threatening pollution affects more than 130 cities in Europe, causing some 400,000 deaths and costing 20 billion euros in health spending every year. Countries that fail to keep to EU limits could face legal action at the European Court of Justice, which can levy fines on member states. In Western Australia, cycling groups are outraged at government road safety videos depicting riders as losers. 
The videos were aimed at motor vehicle drivers and warned drivers that if you lose your license, the consequences can be embarrassing. For instance, you may have to ride a bike. Michelle Roberts, WA's Minister for Police and Road Safety, has ordered the adverts be taken down from social media and the Road Safety Commission's website. She said that it's hard to fathom that in all three campaign videos the focus is on a single mode of transport as a form of punishment, reinforcing negative entrenched preconceptions and myths around people who choose to ride bikes. West Cycle CEO Matt Fulton said it's very disappointing to see riding a bike used in a way that is considered a punishment. It undermines decades of work to normalise cycling. In the UK, Highways England has announced plans to fund three new unmarked HGV or heavy goods vehicle trucks after one used by police forces across the country was used to help catch over 4,000 dangerous drivers in its first two years of operation. The unmarked cabs will patrol motorways and main roads and have all been fitted with wide-angle cameras to capture unsafe driving behaviour. They also have a de-restricted speed limiter which means they can travel at speeds up to the national speed limit. The cabs allow police officers to film evidence of unsafe driving by pulling up alongside vehicles. Drivers are then pulled over by police cars following behind. 28 British police forces took part in the initial trial which pulled over 4,176 drivers in relation to over 5,000 offences. Nearly two-thirds of the drivers who were stopped were illegally using a mobile phone while driving despite the latest statistics showing that mobile phone use is a factor in an average of over two deaths on the roads every month. Recent research published by the US-based Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory shows that drones can deliver certain items faster and with less environmental impact than trucks. They found that within the four-kilometre range of current battery-driven delivery drones, the airborne devices consumed less energy per package and per kilometre than trucks for light deliveries. However, there are several drawbacks to drones that means they are unlikely to displace road-based deliveries at least in the short term. The study found that drones require additional warehouse support due to their limited range and struggle when it comes to larger packages. Amazon is intent on using drones to transport goods weighing less than 2.5 kilograms, which make up the majority of its deliveries. The company achieved its first autonomous drone delivery in December 2016 in the UK. Companies have used Europe as a testing ground because of tight restrictions on the use of drones in the US where the device must be controlled by a human who keeps the drone in visual line of sight at all times. Land Rover has marked Chinese New Year with the introduction of a range of pet-friendly accessories designed to make life with canine friends just that little bit more straightforward. Land Rover now caters for the journey to and from the walk with its new pet packs. The boot can be protected from wet paws and fur with a rubber mat or liner tray, both offering waterproof protection. In addition to the pet pack accessories, the rear height adjust on the Land Rover Discovery is another feature which can make life easier. The electronic air suspension lowers or raises the height of the vehicle at the touch of a button, making it easier for smaller 
or older dogs to climb in. But some of these accessories are not cheap. But there again, nothing is too expensive for your canine friend in the year of the dog. And that has been the news. Sam Linke graduated in 2010 in civil engineering and the history and philosophy of science. She is now the technical leader of transport modelling at the consulting firm Jacobs. She is currently focusing on pedestrian modelling and is also the vice president of the Institute of Transportation Engineers in Australia and New Zealand. She recently travelled overseas on an ITE, Australia and New Zealand, Worldwide Learning Opportunities Program, supported by Oz Traffic, the transport survey company. We had a bit of a chat about the experience. Sam, thanks very much for your time. Hey, thank you. Very good to share the experience. So where did you go? So I travelled over to uh, Toronto uh, for the ITE annual meeting and exhibit in uh, July, August last year. So they're a a worldwide professional body, um, roughly 15,000 people globally, largely in North America, and we have a section here in Australia and New Zealand headquartered out of Melbourne, which I'm vice president of. Hmm. And I think you had some keynote speakers uh, that weren't necessarily just, if I may say, hardcore engineers. Yeah, so particularly um, challenging, I suppose, for a group of of transportation engineers and planners and professionals was the closing plenary speaker, Brent Totteron, who famously uses the term plangineer to try and challenge that we should be planners and engineers and neither and, and both. Um, so that was a, a good perspective to try and help us move perhaps away from the term engineers and to be more a community of transportation professionals, um, as diverse as we can make it. And we also had a, a power lunch session from Professor John Leonard, who is an MIT um, specialist in autonomous vehicles and does a lot of work with Toyota Research Institute. And so also, again, a new, a new very, very informed but very engaging perspective on, on autonomous vehicles and um, perhaps one that was a little bit more pessimistic than optimistic in terms of the timing, which um, was pretty refreshing uh, for, for, again, that audience who I think has spent a lot of energy looking forward. I've spoken to a lot of car companies where they were almost a utopia of what autonomous driving will mean. It's not that simple. No, no. So, I mean, we, we had an hour, an hour and a half, um, so we, we obviously didn't cover everything, but a lot of the examples that, that Professor Leonard presented to us were... Um, about some of the subtleties of, of, of uh, introducing the technology, um, day-to-day subtleties like um, how a vehicle will um, recognise, for example, a, a policeman directing traffic as opposed to someone in a blue outfit on the side of the road mm. waving at a friend. Um, so they were very real and very easily understood, I think, and, and relatable. Um, but technically, he was able to bring the sort of the knowledge that actually these are really difficult for us to try and build into a software that, that needs to be as autonomous as, as, as it can be. There's also going to be a lot of traffic engineering, the whole notion if we share vehicles, where do they stop? Just those practicalities. Very much so, yes. Yeah, a long curve to come. And um, we spent a bit of time in the conference talking about perhaps the challenges along the midpoints of that curve, so somewhere between now and something that is fully automated and a system-wide. So just the the sort of caution we need to have as we move to some sort of hybrid or intermediate steps along the way. Was it a challenge to those who attended the conference, that sort of presentations? I think technically, I mean, it was an incredibly um, clever and experienced group of, of attendees. So I think everyone was technically quite comfortable with the, the content. Perhaps some of the discussion around um, thinking like planners and thinking less like engineers is, is a little bit confronting for people who have been working in engineering for a very long time. Um, it's not necessarily new, but uh, I, I think it was... Um, some of the language was 
and some of the discussion was was deliberately con not controversial, but um, but sort of pointed, I suppose, to try and prompt people to to actually challenge the way that they'd been delivering work previously and think about sort of are we are we making sure that we um, think about how we do things and that we continue to refresh that thinking rather than do things the same way for a long time. I love the notion of purely judging people on their contribution and their input. There would have been a lot of men there. Yeah, uh, it was, it was uh, particularly in the plenary sessions looking out of, around a very big room. Um, there were predominantly men and, and most people were probably older than, than myself um, and, and that's probably indicative of the transport industry generally. Um, but I was really pleased that the conference program and the conference attendees um, I think is increasing in terms of its representation of younger people and of female professionals and there were actually some key sessions that were targeted around those topics which was really, really pleasing um, and we had some really... Uh, open and I think constructive and productive discussion around those topics which was um, not just women sitting around sort of talking about that but, but attended by all people from the conference, men and, and all ages. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Sam Linky, the technical leader of transport modelling at the consulting firm Jacobs who recently travelled overseas on an ITE, Australia and New Zealand, worldwide learning opportunities program supported by Oz Traffic. This is Overdrive across Australia. And now let's hear from our good friend Alan Zervis, who has been out driving the Nissan 370Z, but it's the one with the extra sexy bits from Nismo, which is the Nissan Motorsport International Company, 100% owned by Nissan. They started back in 1984, which was when they were racing uh, in rallying, as I would remember then, but also around the Le Mans as well. But nonetheless, it's the one that they hot up a few versions of car he's been driving one alan the 370z it's been around for a while yeah look it has been around i think it's about nine years for this model did you like the look of it to start with i love it oh really i do i love it yeah i do i do look it looks old there's no doubt yeah. about it but it's a distinctive look and, and i think other car companies have done the same thing with their their cars they just keep the look going for a while i was never greatly wrapped and it looks sort of a bit bulbous around it at the end when it needed a little bit of sharpness i thought but that's my taste to it and i thought some nissan cars don't always date that well no no indeed and look while i think the outside is okay the inside certainly has dated it really needs to yeah. go it's got to go when you sat in it, did it uh, feel good or not good or just old? The seats are fabulous. Right. They are really, really good. They lack a lot of the things that the base model gets because they're Akara racing seats. Ah. So they don't have power adjustment and that kind of thing, but I can, I'm can, i okay with that. But it's the rest of it, David. It's the, the, the dash with those awful orange readouts. Oh, yeah. And the the complete lack of any modern driver aids. There's no blind spot monitoring or lane warning or lane guidance. There's no active cruise control. It just feels it just feels old. And not good for the the comfort of the person. There's no Apple CarPlay, Android Auto. No, there's none of that. Now I normally mark cars down from that, but as I said in my film, then you start it, then you turn it on. And all of that goes away. You mean even the very poor single cup holder? I think you described that as useless. <laughs> I did. Now, look, one of the problems with that cup holder, and I think you and I have struck this in other sporty type cars, is that when you put a cup in it, 
the second you try and change gears, if it's a manual, of course it all goes wrong. You know, you, you just keep banging into the um, cup with your arm that's uh, changing the gears. But you were talking about driving it, at least it is a manual, although you can get, it's a six-speed manual or a seven-speed automatic? Speed auto, that's yeah. right, yep. yeah. A bit more horsepower than the standard one? It's about twelve or 13,000 more than the standard one, and for that you get about, uh, from memory, eight more kilowatts and mm. eight more newton metres, which doesn't seem like a lot to me. I would say that's hardly noticeable in any way, but nonetheless, driving it, what about the highway? Is that in, in, in its element? Absolutely magnificent. It's magnificent. Now, the Nissan um, uh, Nismo tuned suspension, it is definitely firm. We, uh, with one of our other fellow journalists, took it up to the Blue Mountains. And uh, apart from being firm, it's also incredibly noisy. Oh, okay. Uh, the rumble on the, the highway was, was really noticeable, but it's got active noise cancelling. Oh, but it doesn't work? Is that what you're saying? Well, here's the funny thing about active noise cancelling is what it normally does is it just, it's tuned, and we've gone through this with engineers in the past, it's tuned just to certain frequencies or it would do strange things to people's voices, apparently. <laughs> so it'll only tune out some frequencies and then play the opposite wave through the speakers. Okay, on the highway, you enjoyed it greatly. What if it gets a bit rougher? Oh, it does get a bit choppy, but I think that all adds to the experience. Finally, the price. So, uh, uh, what was it like to buy one nine years ago versus now? Well, I, I mentioned again on my film that uh, when I first tested the what was then the, the only model you could get, it was $75,000 on the road, $75,000. Now, you put that into perspective uh, with other cars of the ilk, and it was way more expensive. And, you know, look, they've really not sold a whole lot of them in that nine years because of the price. So it's now $20,000 cheaper. It's just a shade under 55000 And the Nismo, of course, which has got the extra tuning, bracing, seats and suspension and so forth, is 67000 Interesting to note with Nissan, though, it's one of the only two passenger cars they've got left. There's only that and the GTR. Yeah, so all of those, the, the Almira or whatever it was, and the, the, the Pulsar, all gone. They've just got those two low-selling, low-volume cars left, and we've got the GTR next week. And I look forward to it immensely. Alan, lovely to talk to you. Your video is on your website, gaycarboys.com. .com.au now. .com.au. Alan, thanks again for your time. You're welcome, David. Pleasure as always. Alan Zervis from gaycarboys.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, here we are again uh, to talk of some of the more unusual, yet I think very important news stories, particularly one from David Brown Automotive. But to help me do that, we have on the line Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And so, gentlemen, we now look at the David Brown Automotive. They have now brought out their design of the Speedback GT, a beautiful rendition of the Aston Martin DB5. Uh, David Brown, I must point out, has no relationship to me in any uh, sense, unfortunately, neither financial nor by birth. You've looked at this. What do you think? Particularly in red, it's, uh, it's a stunning car. It, it's like they've taken the best of the, the DB5, which is a great-looking car of, the, of its era, and combined that with a, the best of a modern car. 
and just this uh yeah it's a fantastic looking yeah, vehicle I agree. It's such a design evolution you can see the heritage immediately by looking at it it's absolutely clear what it is and what car it's referencing yet it's modern and fresh i think that whoever designed that is a genius i think I tell you who did that particularly well too. There was a company, I think they call Eagle in America, that took the E-Type Jaguar and widened it a bit and just made it, I think, stunning. Eagle Motors, yeah. This one, I think, is not quite as change as the Eagle is, even though you could still see it was clearly an E-Type. This is very much the original. Now, gentlemen, the back slope of it, there's a little bit of Mustang in that, isn't there? The line of the roof down the back. Mm. Yeah, is it, there's oh a, there's, yes, the early, early. Yeah, there, there's there's a hint of uh, yeah, a hint of American uh, muscle car in the in the in the back lines, but it's subtle. In essence, the latest Mustang really does, I think, capture the earlier version as well, but but not quite as much as a, for want of a better word, a copy as this. But now, gentlemen, is it because it's a fantastic-looking car, or because it brings back memories to us? We are, of course, talking the famous James Bond, Aston Martin, and of course, Prince Charles had a little toy one made for him too. That probably doesn't appeal to you quite as much. <laughs> no. On of course, any standard, it's, it's a great-looking car. Yes. And it, apparently this, this David Brown is no relation to the David Brown of Aston Martin fame, which I'm very, very confused about, nor is it related to the David Brown tractors uh, who make farm equipment. That was the original one that went into Aston Martin as well. Several people with a name like David Brown. It's, it's amazing. Look, the, I think that there are just too many David Browns and there should be a quota or a law or something. I once went and worked with an organisation that had two other David Browns. I rang one up one time and said, he said, David Brown. I said, David Brown. He said, yes, David Brown. I said, yes, David Brown. Uh, But apparently he was there before me. He opposed my appointment on the grounds of confusion. (laughs) I think it was tongue in cheek. Gentlemen, the lights at uh, at the rear of this are three vertical lights. They look almost as though a machine gun should come out of them, don't they? Mm, Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. it's it's much better much better looking than their last tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Someone just sent me a picture of a tractor in 1961, which said a David Brown tractor, and it is in uh, remarkably good conditions for its age. So I wrote back and said I have no relation to them, and in regard to remarkably good for their age, condition for their age, that's another point of differentiation. <laughs> <laughs> Errol, you're a passionate man. We've just passed Valentine's Day, that day that we all recall great commercialism. Uh, what do you think about kissing and cars? You've got some research on that. I do have some research, David. And, uh, well, there's just not much of it happening anymore, is the short version. Mm. The marketing today is often about passion and excitement and sex appeal. But it seems that in reality, the romance is waning uh, away from the motor car, according to a a survey of some British motorists. They found that the the people with the most memories of uh, in-car romance were over 55, with uh, 60% of them recalling having a a bit of fun on four wheels. For those in the sort of under 34 age bracket, it was uh, closer to 40%. As we go on, there's less and less people um, having some romance in a car. I'm not sure I subscribe to that. I I think 
what we're talking about here is nostalgia, mm. not so much memories, but nostalgia. Mm. And nostalgia mm. is a thing for people of a certain age that really it's not the core business of young people. They don't look back fondly on stuff that happened just a year ago or something like that. So, so I think when they are 50 plus, they will look back nostalgically and fondly mm. on uh, their experience in their autonomous vehicle. I wonder if there'll be a resurgence in in-car romance when the uh, autonomous vehicle takes off, because then you can actually get from A to B and have some romance at the same time. Mm. Safely, I should clarify. Yeah, yeah, get from A to B and first to third base, as the Americans say. But I think there'll be a rush among people to be the first to do the Congress of the Vol in the autonomous vehicle. Brian, I think your point too is that young people, if they've had a romantic encounter a year ago, still remember the difficulty of it. Whereas once you get to 55, Mm. (laughs) they're still horrified by it (laughs) and trying to repress the memory. Well, well, actually, when they're older, it's changed. Perhaps the older people are underrepresented because they keep having memory loss. So if a good percentage still remember it, add in those who've had memory loss, that perhaps it is overrepresented. You know, I have a theory that we don't have nearly as much romance in the cars as we used to for two reasons. One is that there are far more bedrooms now, whereas you and I might have shared a bedroom with your, your brother And so it's not that easy. And of course, attitudes to bringing a girlfriend or boyfriend home have been more liberal recently than they may have been in the past. Mm. Mm. That's all true, David. But I think uh, you're missing a couple of key points, which uh, we just don't have anymore. Uh, One of them is the bench front seat in the car, Mm. which made, you know, sliding over to your your partner Mm. that much easier while you were parked. And the other thing is, of course, the drive-in theatre. And most people oh. under, under 30 oh. wouldn't know what that was. Yes, yes. That was a, a ride, a ride of passage was, was going to the drive-in theatre to um, watch a movie. Yeah, <clears throat> that's right. And you would park your panel van with the rear towards the, towards the yes, screen. Yes, yeah, yes, Yeah, that was that. Yes. Now, that's nostalgic. I still remember mm. the drive-in theatre mm. and, and the fogged up windows. So you missed seeing the movie. Yeah, I never saw the movies. Yeah, well, that just gave you an excuse to go back again. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for your time, and we'll see you again. Thank you, David. David. Brian Smith and Errol Smith, they're talking about some unusual news stories from the David Brown automotive, uh, that the modern car is losing its passion as or a place for passion, and China's last steam train is still going. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.